Hello, everybody. Rico here. And this is Brendan. You're going to hear this week's episode in just a minute. But first, we wanted to alert you to another show we're going to be doing in the real world. That's right. We do not just exist in your headphones, though we do find those very comfy and warm. Except for the earbuds. Those are a little too small. We are actual people who walk around and have faces and stuff. And on Friday, June 20th, we're going to prove it as radio station KPC-CFM presents the DPD Live in the Moss Theater at the New Road School in Santa Monica, California. That's right. Our guest of honor will be Mad Men star Elizabeth Moss. Man. And answering your etiquette questions in person will be the queen of the beach read, novelist Jackie Collins, (laughs) who you may have heard on our show offering advice like this. Try not to get kidnapped. See, she's just the person to set your life straight. Perfect. Uh, Also, we are going to be featuring everyone's favorite guest, a cash bar. Tickets are going fast, so buy a few right now online at kpcc.org slash events. Can't wait to see you there. And now, here's your icebreaker. I can tell you my mother's favorite joke. Um, Guy gets up in the middle of the night and he goes to the refrigerator. He's kind of hungry. He opens the door and there's a rabbit sitting in the refrigerator. Man says to the rabbit, what are you doing there? The rabbit says, this is a Westinghouse, isn't it? I says, yeah. The rabbit says, well, I'm Westing. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from playwright Robert Schenken. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak with him later about his Tony-nominated play, All the Way. Plus, actor Harry Dean Stanton talks about his new album and his late-night conversations with Marlon Brando. They are as weird as you imagine. Also coming oh, yeah. up, musician Hamilton Lighthouser, poet Patricia Lockwood, and the cure for the common hangover. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl was the only remaining American prisoner of war, and now he's been freed. 25 years ago today, Tiananmen Square. Now to the NBA Finals, San Antonio against the back-to-back champs, the Heat. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Erin McCann. She is assistant news editor at The Guardian. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh, I need to first offer the caveat that if you're eating food right now, put it down. (laughs) (laughs) At a dinner party. This is a dinner dinner party party. show, Erin. Uh, Good idea. And here's the part where I talk about how a scientist slash artist has regrown Vincent Van Gogh's missing ear. What? How do you regrow Van Gogh's ear? Like, he really did this. (laughs) He really did this. They got the DNA from his great-great-grandson. I'm sorry, the great-great-grandson of Vincent's brother, Theo. Okay. Uh. And they used that DNA and grew an ear from that DNA. They used a 3D printer, which can apparently do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shells were... The, well, so- I wonder what the toner is for this. <laughs> Actually, I don't yeah. want to know. Skin but- toner. Yeah. Well, it's got to be human flesh toner. I don't want to know who has to make that. Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, and so- Anyway, the cells were shaped to resemble the ear that Vincent is said to have cut off during a psychotic episode in 1888. Is this the best use of this technology? I mean, what about, like, Einstein's brain. I don't know. Luke's uh, missing hand. Luke's, yeah, Theolonius sure. Monk's hands. I mean, there are other things that I think well, I mean, Van Gogh didn't even want his ear. No. <laughs> it just that doesn't is, seem right. Maybe they should have regrown his hand so we could have him paint. That would have been a, yeah. I mean, what are, are we going to learn anything about Vincent Van Gogh from looking at his chopped off ear? Maybe it deserved to get chopped off? How do you even know what the ear looked like? What if it was really deformed and it's like, oh, maybe he wasn't crazy. He just wanted to get this <laughs> ugly thing off his head. Uh, Aaron McCann, thanks for the eerie story. <laughs> <laughs> it's very erudite. Oh, man, his friends have got to go up to him and just be like, hey, man, lend me your ear. Oh, oh man. Oh. Let's quickly move on to cocktails. 
This is the part of the show where we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender represent it in cocktail form. Yes, it's like attending history class in a bar. Huh. <laughs> Fun. First, the history. This week back in 1932, the New York Yankees' Tony Lazari turned in one of the best and least appreciated performances in baseball history. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Tony Lazari did the near impossible, just not near impossible enough. It was June 3rd, 1932, and the Yankees were playing the Philadelphia Athletics. When it was over, Lazari had managed one of the rarest feats in baseball. He hit a single, a double, a triple, and a home run. In that order. It's called a natural cycle. Now, the chance of a batter hitting a natural cycle in an average game is around a thousandth of a percent. There have been fewer natural cycles than even so-called perfect games. And Lazari not only beat those odds, but his climactic homer was a grand slam. A star-making performance, right? Except one problem. Lazari had a teammate, a fellow named Lou Gehrig, who played a pretty good game that day, too. Lou swatted four home runs, the first batter to do so in modern Major League history. A miraculous feat, but not actually as miraculous as Lazari's. There have been 16 four-homer games since, compared to just 13 natural cycles. And Lazari's still the only player who ever topped off a cycle with a grand slam. Even so, back in 32, Lou was hailed as the star of the game. Surprisingly, Lazari seemed to harbor some resentment toward his more famous teammates. Remembering Gehrig and another Yankee, Babe Ruth, he once said, quote, Gehrig thought Ruth was a big mouth and Ruth thought Gehrig was cheap. They were both right. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the cocktail to go along with it. I am joined by Dan Greenbaum, owner and bar manager of The Beagle, which is in Manhattan, not far from where Tony Lazari hit his natural cycle. So Dan, you heard the history lesson. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? I found a drink in the Savoy cocktail book from 1930. This drink's called the Cooperstown. Named after the, oh, where the Hall of Fame is. Cooperstown, New York, definitely. Sounds good, so what's, what's in the drink? So it's basically a variation on the martini. So in my opinion, a martini is gin and a little bit of vermouth. Can there really be a variation? Would agree with you on that. But this is just another tweak on that by putting a little mint in. Mint signals to me that we are leaving martini territory and we're in like caparina territory. Yes, usually I would say yes, but this is a weird application of mint. We're just gonna throw it in the mixing glass here and, and bruise it to kind of release the oils without getting that full on mint flavor. And what are you gonna do with it? So I'm gonna put in half an ounce of dry vermouth. Okay. And then I'm going to use a blanc vermouth. And then I'll just bruise the mint a little bit. That muddler looks like a little baseball bat. It does look like a little kind of Louisville slugger. And then I'm going to take a little gin. I like a, a stronger gin here. This is a London Dry that I'm using. And now what are you going to do? I'm just going to crack the ice and stir this cocktail. It looks clear. I see a little bit. I see some mint in there. It looks a little bit like, you know, the grass on a baseball field. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to try it. Wow. It's funny this is called the Cooperstown. It feels more like a drink you would, you would drink at a polo ground than a baseball stadium. This is kind of what a Yankees fan would drink as opposed to maybe a Mets fan. Uh, I don't know about that. We would, I'm, I am a Yankees fan. I, w- I would have to say that when it comes to baseball nowadays, we all like beer. 
Enrico, since I brought up polo, I, I decided to do a little research, and I found out that the game of polo also has a natural cycle. Really? Yeah, okay. you, you have to score a goal, drink a martini, and then inherit a lot of money. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All in the same day. Well, that part's unclear. All right, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Folks, if you want to cycle through our past drink recipes, you can find them at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made some small talk, had a drink, but the party hasn't really started until there's music playing. And here with that is Hamilton Lighthouser. The tie-wearing baritone vocalist was frontman of beloved indie band The Walkmen until they went on a, quote, pretty extreme hiatus six months ago. This week, Hamilton releases his debut solo album. Here he is to DJ your next gathering. Hi, my name's Hamilton Lighthouser. I have a new album called Black Hours. And here is my dinner party soundtrack. Whoa, that was a woman in the Bible days. The first song I think I'd put on would be just a classic Touch the Hem of His Garment by Sam Cooke. But she heard my Jesus was passing by, so she joined the gathering throng. Just such a welcoming classic sound, upbeat, but not in the way if you're maybe having appetizers or something like that. She said if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. I mean, I listened to a lot of Sam, a lot of the Soul Stirrers, his first band. I've crossed the line where I've imitated him too much, and it is just awful. It's just so embarrassing sounding. So I, I kind of consciously have to remind myself I can't try to sound like Sam Cooke, you know? He's got the best voice. My next track would be Twist with the Morning Stars by S.C. Roji from his record Palm Wine Guitar Music. He's a uh, guitar player, singer from Sierra Leone, put out a lot of really good records. This is my favorite one. Hey, you pretty boys and girls, why not make it now with the morning stars? You can't understand everything he's talking about. Twist with the morning stars, kind of dance the night away, I guess. I think he's just talking about dancing all night and having a good time. Everybody young and old. You better join us in twisting your cares away. He played from the 40s, maybe, and played till he died in the 90s. Now go get with the one you love. I say Karasek is the one you love. I'm go get wildly twist with the morning time. Really peppy bass line and peppy guitar, and the, the, the drums are pretty quiet, but he's got sort of shakers and stuff, and just nice melodies, and I really like his voice. His voice is funny. My daughter really gets a kick out of it. She's two and a half. I'm go get wildly twist with the morning time. And he sort of sounds like a cartoon character when he sings. I'm go get wildly twist with the morning She's really gotten into music recently. It's kind of making me nervous. For my third song, Radio and TV by the Everly Brothers. Radio and TV do a lot for me. I would think this would be sort of deeper into the meal. Everyone's had a couple drinks and things are getting a little loud. My mom listened to the Everly Brothers a lot when we were little. She listened to Patsy Cline and the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly, so those were always ones that were around. Yeah, my parents have pretty good taste in music, actually. My mom would be shocked to hear me say that. It's nice to sit and say the things that lovers have to say. 
It's goofy and bouncy and, you know, it has that great Everly Brothers harmony. Not like this is their finest. This is more just funny. Take away my baby, take away everything, but don't take away my radio and my TV. <laughs> so I don't want to sound like a pretentious jerk or anything, but like, my TV. I'd rather have my radio. So if I was forced to play a song at the party of mine, I'd choose uh, the Silent Orchestra, second song on the record. Sentiment actually might be a little bit of a downer lyrically, but musically, it's very peppy and happy sounding. But pity and passion for the children. My daughter loves this track. This would this would be maybe her third favorite track. Come and find me. I was recording Amber Kaufman from the Dirty Projectors came in and did some backups on this, and my daughter was with me at the engineering desk, and she was just mesmerized. And I think that Amber was the greatest thing she's seen in her two and a half years on the planet. We made a promise to remain strong. I have been honest, honest enough. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of Hamilton Lighthouser. His new album is called Black Hours, and Rico, it sounds like Hamilton's daughter has excellent taste. Right? She's hit. When I was her age, I, I was a Barry Manilow man. So, <laughs> Well, don't turn your back on Copacabana, man. That was a great track. All right, coming up, we speak with Harry Dean Stanton. He was the second guy killed in Alien. He played the dad in Pretty in Pink. And he sang with Bob Dylan. He's an American original. He'll tell you about it when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Pulitzer-winning playwright Robert Schenken schools us about LBJ's pants for real. But first, <laughs> it's time to meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's actor Harry Dean Stanton. Thanks to his weathered face and superb acting chops, he's considered one of the great character actors. After serving World War II, he moved to Los Angeles and went on to appear in over a hundred movies, Jeez. among them Cool Hand Luke, The Godfather Part II, Alien. Repo Man, major film for me. Yeah, Wild at Heart, Paris, Texas, and The Avengers. This year, a documentary came out about his wild life in late 20th century Hollywood and about his love of music. This week, he released an album of songs he recorded for that movie, and I talked to him about it. But first, here's Stanton's rendition of the Roy Orbison classic, Blue Bayou. Save a nickel, save a dime Work until the sun don't shine Looking forward to happier times On Blue Bayou I'm going back someday Come what may do Blue Bayou Where the folks are fine and the world is mine on Blue Bayou. Does the song have any special significance to you, or do you just like the melody? Oh, it's just a beautiful song, beautifully written. Was that the guiding framework for all the songs in this album, just songs you thought were pretty? Yeah, it was just songs that I resonated with over the years. Bye. 
cover Chris Christopherson's Help Me Make It Through the Night on this album. Yeah. And you and he are friends, correct? Yeah, we've been friends for years. A- and you starred in Cisco Pike with him, and you... Yeah, I got him in the movie. Oh, yeah? How'd that happen? Well, they couldn't get in touch with him, and I had uh, Fred Roos, uh, manager, agent, manager, call me and said, can you get Chris in for an interview? So I met him at, uh, uh, what's that club on... Uh, Santa Monica. The Troubadour? Yeah, the Troubadour. We met there. So I went up with him on the interview, and uh, I read with him at the interview, and uh, right before, I forget who directed that. Do you have that? Bill Norton. Bill Norton, yeah. I was waiting outside the door. Chris was inside, ready to start the interview. And he came out and told me, he said, I want you to scare Chris when he opens the door. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking, how am I going to scare this guy? He's a boxer, a helicopter pilot, yeah. all-American hero. <laughs> Tough guy, yeah. And how the hell am I going to scare him? And for some reason or other, I never did anything like this in my life. There was a beer bottle sitting in the corner, empty beer bottle. I knocked on the door. He opened it. I broke the beer bottle on the knob of the door, grabbed him by the shirt, and stuck the broken bottle under his chin. <laughs> And he was scared. <laughs> <laughs> and this was an effort to demonstrate he could play a scared guy, right, for the screen test? Yeah, well, he had he had to be frightened in the scene for some reason or other. This album comes from a documentary that came out about you. Uh, and in that documentary, Christofferson appears, and he tells you that he thinks that you're more into music than you are into acting. Uh, it's, it's pretty much equal, actually. I like uh, both forms of performing is uh, it's very similar if you can sing you can act hmm. as a matter of fact anybody can be a film actor anybody off the street can be a film actor if you got a good director is that all it takes really i mean you seem like you have sure. some special qualities yeah if i give you a line i say i want you to come in and say hello what's your name you come in you say hello what's your name <laughs> <laughs> you make anybody it s- can do that hello what's your name how was that yeah I just gave you a line, you remembered it, and you said the line, right? <laughs> you make it sound so simple. It is. It's very simple. So when you were a kid, was music ever present in your life? No, I started singing already when I was about six years old. When people leave the house, I would get up on a stool and sing. It was a dull Jimmy Rogers song. Yeah. T for Texas. They called him the singing brakeman. Jimmy Rogers also yodeled a little bit, and, and in this movie, you do kind of a yodel. Do you remember when you... Yeah, I can yodel a little bit, but I'm... <laughs> My voice is a little fuzzy today. That's pretty good, though. You also appeared in um, Packard and Billy the Kid with Chris Christopherson. Yeah. And another actor in that movie was Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, we're good friends, too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Did you and he ever play any music together? Yeah, we. Uh, I recorded with him once. Oh, I didn't know and that. He asked me, did I want a copy of it? And I said, no, like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple standard questions we ask each of our guests, and one of them is, what question do you not like being asked in interviews? One question? <laughs> well, there's more than one. I'm sure there are a couple. You've mentioned you get annoyed about the term character actor. Yeah, it's uh, every actor is a character actor. If you're playing a lead, you're still playing a character. 
That's true. It's a silly, a silly category. I could have been a romantic lead too. I had the opportunity. I did a movie with John Carpenter, mm -hmm. Christine, the movie. Yeah. He called. They offered me a series playing a private eye. <laughs> Said I would be able to direct ultimately, help cast it, and I would have more. <laughs> the words they used: "You'll have more money. You'll be more famous, and have more." on camera and off, than you've ever had in your life. Goodness. That's the way they offered it to me. And you turned it down. I turned it down. I just didn't want to work, I guess. So our second question, we asked people to tell us something we don't know, something they haven't shared before in interviews, or they can tell us an interesting fact about the world. An interesting fact about the world? Yeah. Yeah, there's no answer. Is that your fact? Yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> that answer sounds reminiscent of one of your friends and heroes, Marlon Brando, with whom you shared an interest in Eastern philosophy. Oh, yeah. We, we were very close the last three years of his life. We spent hours on the phone. Marlon was great. And did you have those sorts of conversations about Zen and nothingness and, and oh, what yeah, all means? Oh, yeah, everything. He taught me Shakespearean monologues on the phone. <laughs> had me recite them to him. Do you remember a piece of one in particular? Our play is now ended. Uh, these are actors, as I foretold you, we're all spirits and are faded into nothing, into air, into thin air. William Shakespeare from The Tempest. Yeah. I was, see, it was something else about Marlon. Uh, he asked me once, he said, what do you think of me? And I said, I think you're nothing. <laughs> he went, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it was an East. He understood what I was saying. All right. He said, "What?" He said, "Do you like me because I'm Marlon Brando? Or because I'm a real person?" I said, "Well, when I was a, started out acting, I liked you because you were Marlon Brando." But I said, "Now I don't give a." <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton. Man. His new album is called Partly Fiction. That's also the title of a recent documentary about him. If you're a fan of his or 70s, 80s Hollywood in general, you're going to want to check it out. For real. Funny that it's called Partly Fiction, actually, because it sounds like his real life requires no embellishment whatsoever. <laughs> right? It's amazing. I guess when you've shot 100 movies, your life has literally been partly fiction. And now, time to eavesdrop. Last summer, Patricia Lockwood broke onto the national scene with a poem called Rape Joke. It's a fierce and funny rebuttal to misogyny that became the most shared contemporary poem ever on social media. Her new collection of poems just came out, Today we overhear her read one. Hello, my name is Patricia Lockwood, and I've just released a new book called Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals. I do talk a lot about that period of time before you're a teenager, that sort of 10-year-old and 11-year-old age. I know that when I was a 10-year-old, I was convinced that I would one day go to Egypt and discover a new mummy, so I was thinking about that when I sat down and wrote this. When the world was ten years old, he fell deep in love with Egypt. Just as he fell in love with the dinosaurs, just as he would fall in love with the moon, no women in the world yet, he was only ten years old. A ten-year-old is made of time, 
the world had forever to learn about Egypt. He entered encyclopedias and looted every fact of them, and when he had finished looting there, he broke into the Bible. He snuck into his mother's room and drew thick lines around his eyes, and those were the borders of Egypt. He carefully wrote in stiff small birds, he carefully wrote in coiled snakes, he carefully wrote in flat-footed humans. The ten-year-old world needed so much privacy, he learned to draw the doorbolt glyph and learned to make the sound it made. I am an old white British man, decided the ten-year-old world. I wear a round lens on my right eye, the day, and see only a blur with my left eye, the night. When the sun shone on him, it shone on Egypt. All the dark for a while was the dark in the pyramids. The left lung of his body was the shape of Africa and one single square breath in it, Egypt. They never found all the tombs he knew. Anyone might be buried in Egypt, thought the ten-year-old world in love with it. I will send my wind down into my valley, and my wind will uncover the doors to the tombs, and I will go down myself inside them, and shine light on all the faces, and light on the rooms full of gold, and light on even the littlest pets, on the mice and the beetles of the ten-year-old kings and shine light on even their littlest names. Patricia Lockwood, reading a poem from her new collection, Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals. You can hear her read another poem on our website. That's dinnerpartydownload.org. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, on every episode of our show, of course, we provide a cocktail recipe. Yeah. But we never really think about why, I mean, scientifically, certain liquors or combinations of them <laughs> taste good. That's you because know? I'm too busy figuring out why they cost so much. <laughs> That's economics. It's a different science. Yeah, the dismal science. That's right. But a book just came out called Proof all about the science that goes into creating alcoholic beverages. So I spoke to the author, Adam Rogers. He also writes for Wired magazine. And I asked him about his contention that booze is, quote, civilization in a glass. Well, it's a little bit of a plagiarism. I stole that from noted drinker William Faulkner. He said uh, civilization begins with distillation. Mm. And, you know, you could talk about the metaphor of what distillation means, the boiling down, the getting to the heart of something. But I'm actually taking him literal, which is to say that when we learned how to ferment about 10,000 years ago and then distill maybe 2,000 years ago, that's when we became people. Those are the moments when Homo sapiens becomes human beings. Why? Well, in the case of fermentation, that's when we began to intentionally interact with our natural environment. Fermentation, the process of yeast eating sugar and excreting ethanol, goes on with or without us, right? It's a natural process. But when we domesticate that process, we become part of nature in a way that we hadn't before. We're going to use something that happens in nature to our own end. So really you're saying mankind started harnessing nature so we could get a little drunk? Well, every culture has different reasons and rationales behind <laughs> ethanol. Um, I mean, certainly it's pleasant and it has it has an effect. You know, it has a, in a time when there were no other medicines. It has a right. it has an effect that f- it feels like you were doing something, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and also, you know, it probably helped in, in some cultures and in some places with just water purity. Um, at various points in the book, you get into various types of alcohol and how these 
kind of alchemical wizards today are perfecting them. And they experiment in bizarre ways sometimes with alcohol, like aging booze on barges in the ocean. What was the most extreme of these methods that you encountered? Oh, boy. I mean, you you mentioned the um, aging a a distillate on a boat to try to get it to slosh around, be in more contact with the wood. I actually like the distillery that originally was um, playing like rock and roll at the barrels to try to get the vibrations, (laughs) to get the liquid to slosh around more. They actually don't use music anymore. They had an acoustician come in and set up the exact right wavelengths to really thump the bass. Did they find that there was a particular band that resulted in an excellent brew? I think they played a lot of, if I remember right, it was a lot of dub. But, really? Oh, yeah, because of the bass, right? Sure. Heavy bass. But as far as I could tell, they never actually blind tested one next to the other. It's like, well, this is the one we played dubstep for, and this is the one we played EDM. <laughs> but this all begs the question, are these improvements that result worth the trouble, really? I mean, at a certain point, aren't they just... Only an expert palate is going to be able to tell the difference, right? Well, I mean, you're thinking about that, it seems like, as a, a the arc of the universe bends toward better alcohol or something, and that's not really what's going on, right? Like, what they're trying to do is make something different and make something that also tastes good. You know, you can imagine um, winemakers trying to accommodate two impulses. One would be to make something that lived up to the specifications of this is exactly what a Pinot Noir is supposed to taste like. And another one is this is a new version that nobody's ever had before that they will think is delicious. Early on in the book, you tell a story about watching your mother order a martini on the rocks and the bartender won't make it for her because he says that's just not the way you serve a martini. And you have this epiphany about how there's this idea that there's a correct way to serve a cocktail. After going through all the science about alcohol and all these beverages and the ways that they're made, is there a drink that you now order differently because scientifically it just tastes better served a different way? That is a great question. Oh, um, I, I really like single malt whiskey, and I used to only drink it neat. Mm. Now I don't. I, uh, I tend to put an ice cube in it now for a couple of reasons. Whoa, that um, is, I know a lot of people right now are tearing their hair out at this thought. Well, so two reasons. One is that it's meant to be served at a colder temperature than we usually serve it. You know, it comes from a place that's a bit colder. And when it's chilled down, you're getting a different experience of the different aromatic molecules that are coming off the top of that drink and into the headspace. Different molecules are getting into the air. You're smelling them in a different order than the distiller, than the blender meant for you to smell them. Wow. Also, a lot of the ones that I get are cask strength or higher proof. Mm. And it comes out too hot for me. It's too strong a drink. So I put an ice cube in and it dilutes a little bit, cools it off. Of course, that then begs the question, why are you getting cask strength stuff if it's too hot? Oh, no. It's, well, first of all, because I want to taste it, but also, <laughs> but also because it's like buying uh, concentrated laundry detergent. It's just a much better deal. <laughs> <I see. laughs> all right. We can't not talk about hangovers. You end the book yeah. with a section on the science behind hangovers. I leapt forward to it, actually. <laughs> Give us the basics. What causes a hangover? All the things that they tell you that first night of the first weekend of college are wrong. So they tell you it's dehydration. It's not dehydration. That's not what's causing it. No. Sugary drinks, not what does it. Mixing your drinks, you know, getting a strawberry daiquiri first and then getting a beer, not what does it. I'm on the edge of my seat. What is it? Right. Did I get you teed up enough there? Yes. So cause is not understood, but the symptoms look an awful lot like an inflammatory response. So the same thing that happens in your body if you have the flu, let's say, right? So, hey, wait aren't there some kinds of drugs called anti-inflammatories? Yes. And in fact, one of the really good studies where a drug showed an effect on helping hangover used a drug called Clotam, kind of a nuclear-powered anti-inflammatory. They prescribe it for migraines in Europe and other countries. It's not in the U.S. pharmacopoeia. Uh, of course. But there's a, uh, there's a vitamin B6 analog called peritinol. There is prickly pear cactus extract. 
What? Not surprising, actually, because it's supposed to have an anti-inflammatory effect. I believe that I had read somewhere that it was caffeine and aspirin were the only things that really helped. Yeah, they seem to help, too. Here's the thing about anti-inflammatories is that they have their own side effects. Acetaminophen, you know, has liver toxicity, and your liver is already working overtime trying to deal with all the booze you just poured onto it. So you should be thinking of a hangover as nature's way of telling you you screwed up last night, not, <laughs> you know, not something to try to dodge around. Nothing scientific about that. Just get your act together, people. That's right. Adam Rogers. His book is called Proof, the Science of Booze. And Brendan, that story that I mentioned about Adam's mom ordering a martini on the rocks. Yeah. That happened at Musso and Frank here in L.A. No, say it isn't so. Yeah, that's the oldest, maybe the best martini joint in the city, as you know. And all she got was a reprimand? <laughs> I know. People have been disappeared for that order at Musso's. <laughs> She's a lucky, <laughs> lucky lady. All right, coming up, everybody, your etiquette questions answered by Emily Post's great-great-grandkids. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from the rapper Common, and we speak with the Pulitzer-winning playwright behind the Tony-nominated play All the Way for which he just won a Drama Desk Award. Wow, time for a new trophy shelf over there. He, he has taken measurements. But first, it is time to learn some manners. That's right. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week are etiquette superheroes Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. Hooray. They're the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and join us once a month to tackle your most trying dilemmas and to help everyone get along. Mm. You guys are like superheroes. Capes and all. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the summer blockbuster season, you know? Get in on it, guys. They co-authored Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie, Dan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with an etiquette question of my own that involves you two. Yeah. I was in Vermont Uh-oh. the other weekend. Beautiful, what? beautiful Ooh. state. Yes, and for years I've been telling you I'd pay a visit at the Emily Post Institute, the most polite place in the world. <laughs> well, I was super busy and I didn't. And you didn't. But now in the age of social networking, it's easy for people to see where, you know, you are. And I'm wondering, like, should I, I felt uncomfortable tweeting and Instagramming that I was there because I knew people would want yeah. to know that I was there. Yeah. What's the etiquette around that? Should he have felt self-conscious about it or just gone with it? Only when it comes to us. Um, <laughs> no, you, sh- you should tweet. You can't see everybody on a trip. We were not planned as a part of your trip. If you had had time and wanted to see if we were around, that would have been great. If not, we understand. We're just mostly happy that you're here. So I think that anybody who's traveling to a place where they have friends and they're probably not going to be able to see them, it's still okay to post and make references to where you are and say, you know, I'll catch you the next time I'm there. But then you get the inevitable, like, you're here now? Why did I not know that? Yeah, I mean, that happens. But then just, just say, yeah, I am. I wish I had time to see you, but I don't. It's a little bit like the RSVP question. Don't be afraid to give the no. Mm. Assume that the other person is secure enough to yeah, accept that too. and that you're a special person, but you're not so special that hearts will break all across Vermont. <laughs> Although I, I um, love the awareness that you're thinking about it and how you use social media and all of the layers of messages that it sends. That's I, I, I think Brendan's that special. <laughs> Just saying. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> all right. Well, well, that thanks for answering my question. That answers the question. Now we have questions from our audience. From actual real people. Here's something. Hey, I'm a real person. Well, you're a yeah. special person. Oh, thank you. I think. Um, Okay. (laughs) Here's something from Lucy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lucy asks, if you bring a dish to a dinner party and not all of it gets eaten, 
Do you take the rest home or do you leave it there? Good barbecue season question. That is good barbecue season question. I think that this really lies with the host. I think that you bring a dish knowing that it's going to get eaten. You're not expecting to take home leftovers. And I think a good host, if there's a decent amount of a dish left, will package it up and send it back home with the person who made it. I think it's just considerate. I know personally, I have a household of two people in it. There's, an, I'm not going to be able to finish most of the leftovers from a barbecue. And if everybody brings over something, then your refrigerator gets filled up and you don't have room for it anyway. Exactly. So That's why I throw parties. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but here's the thing. Leftovers all week. <laughs> right? As the guest, don't be mad if you don't get those leftovers. Mm. You brought that dish to contribute and that should be the spirit with which you think of it. All right. This next question comes from Tiffany in San Antonio. Tiffany writes, I really need to know what is the rule on what time of day is okay to text someone? I get that 9 to 9 is acceptable to call someone, but does that apply to text? I sleep with my text sound off, and I figure most people do too and will get back to me in the morning. But is that normal? Mm. Well, definitely don't assume that most people do. Right. I certainly don't. I don't, I don't know about you. No, you that's guys, a pretty yeah. fancy well, wait a level of cell phone use there. <laughs> you guys, ha- Wait, you guys have your text sound on? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, why? I, first of all, I have no sound on anything because we all look at our phones seven million times a day. Oh, so it's always on vibrate. Yeah, it can be on vibrate for rings, but text it doesn't do anything. Text is the kind of the discrete twenty-four-hour line. But what about for emergencies? You know, like that's it, why I leave mine on. What if that's the way that somebody texts you? Basically, are you, you saying that for an emergency you should call? You shouldn't text in an. How would you text in an emergency? Like, OMG, hit by a car. <laughs> My vocal cords got slashed. I can't talk. Somebody call nine one. Yeah, for me. I think then it's okay to call, and then you have it on vibrate, which kind of makes a sound anyway. Okay, so. I see what you're saying. Basically, the, I think the question is really about what time is it okay to send a text message? And I, I think texting is kind of a fair game one, but I also also, don't think you should be texting people all the time at really early or late hours. Maybe the purpose of the text comes into play here a little bit also. Oh, if you're too. talking about business, maybe sticking to the old call rules makes sense just because mm-hmm. you don't want to impose even even that thought on the space. If they're not going to reply to I a like business issue after yeah. 8 or 9 o'clock, then why send the text then? If it's a social text, something that you do do all hours of the day and night, you know your audience, why not? All right. So text bomb your friends basically, Tiffany, but uh, give your boss a break during late night hours. Uh, Here's something from Beth in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Beth writes, in my professional life, I use my full name, Elizabeth. In daily life, however, everyone calls me Beth. When I send in job applications, I always use Elizabeth because I want potential employers to find my publications. But if I'm lucky enough to get an interview, it starts to feel awkward for them to call me by a name I don't really use day to day. At what point in a job application process is it appropriate to switch to a nickname? Right away. Just as soon as you, you're you introduced to the person, I would say, yeah, my name's, you know, Elizabeth Sterling. We'll make it up. Um, but please feel <laughs> free to call me Beth. And yep. just right, right then okay. and there at that first interaction. And it's okay that her published material is listed as Elizabeth. That person-to-person interaction, it should be used by Beth. And you can definitely offer your preferred name at a as part of a self-introduction it, also. Interesting. I love this question. That's like a classic. That's a question for your great-great-grandmother. You know what I mean? That's like Emily Post, first edition. Absolutely. And right. it's a great one to ask someone if you're meeting someone for the first time. A, a Daniel. Do you prefer mm. Daniel or is it okay to call you Dan? Oh. It's, it's, it's okay to yes, ask it's, about. Yeah. about contractions but or it's definitely better to offer as the person. So, for instance, if you were going into a job interview and the person interview is going to be your boss, 
would you ask them, you know, oh, can I call you Dan? No. Not, no. Or, but you might ask, what do you prefer to be called? Or how do you like to be addressed? I, see, yeah. I say in that kind of a situation, you should just address them by the formal and wait for them to invite you to oh, the... We have a disagreement between Dan Dan and Liz Liz. <laughs> All right. So, so I guess... choose your muskets. Let's settle this the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> but so well, yeah. well, we can agree that you are welcome to tell people how you want to be. Absolutely. Called. All right. All right. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. Thank you for telling our audience how to behave. And uh, but I still want to see you duel sometime, <laughs> gentlemen. Once again, a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting, co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, and of course, the great-great-grandchildren of Etiquette Dwyane, Emily Post. And folks, don't text me at night, but feel free to email your etiquette questions to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way. Call us at 213-621-3470 anytime you want. And now, time for Chattering Class, where we are schooled by an expert in a party-worthy topic. This week, the subject is President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and our teacher is playwright Robert Schenken. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for his epic series of one acts called The Kentucky Cycle. His latest Broadway hit is called All the Way. It stars Brian Cranston as LBJ. Cranston is up for a Tony this weekend for his performance, and Robert's script is up for Best Play. And Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first of all, why the increased interest these last few years in LBJ? There's your play. There are the series of nonfiction books by Robert Caro about LBJ, several films in which he's a character. What is in the ether that makes us so attracted to LBJ? <laughs> I think there are a couple of reasons. One, I think uh, enough time has elapsed that uh, we are now able to look back at this very passionate and oftentimes traumatic period in our history with a little less emotion. Partially, this is being driven by a series of anniversaries. This year, for example, is, of course, the 50th anniversary of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And then I think, finally, there's such a, a level of frustration with the inability of Congress yeah. to function <laughs> Period. That I think people look back at LBJ and uh, and that historic Congress in 1964 and their amazing length of accomplishments. Uh, I think 107 bills, major bills. Yeah, and the and the play deals largely with LBJ pushing through the civil rights bill. What about him allowed him to get divisive bills through Congress like that in a way that we can't seem to today? Because it was a very divisive bill. Well, I think there are a couple of things. One, a tremendous amount of practical experience. LBJ had been in the House and then, of course, famously been Senate Majority Leader. He knew how to get things done legislatively. But, but surely there are people that have seniority right now and know how the game is played. Well, I mean, uh, yes and no. I don't think uh, President Obama uh, has nearly LBJ's practical experience, and I think that matters. But LBJ also knew the players and, and knew them intimately. Politics was all he cared about. He had, the man had no hobbies, had no other life. Polit <laughs> he lived and breathed politics. And he made it his life's work to know all the players, and I mean know them intimately, what they needed, what they were afraid of, what their districts wanted. 
The uh, Johnson treatment, the relentless, ruthless, full-court-press way in which he went about getting things done is also hard to duplicate. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he set his mind on something, he was very hard to say no to. (laughs) This is about votes. You know that's a problem with you liberals. You don't know how to fight. You want to get something done in the real world, Hubert? You're going to have to get your hands wet. Now you call yourself the leader of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and show me some goddamn leadership. In an early scene, you set up this guy's really multiple personalities. He seemed to be able to play all sides of any issue. You actually specifically follow up a scene where he gives a speech advocating for civil rights with a scene that begins with him referring to someone with the N-word. Yes. (laughs) And other characters are always trying to figure out whether he's being expeditious or honest at any given moment. What do you think was the honest core of him? You know, MLK asks at one point in the play, what does Lyndon Johnson really want? What did he want? I think what he really wanted was civil rights. Ultimately, he did play a very, very close political game for years, keeping his cards tightly to his chest, to the Dixiecrats. He was a good old boy, happy with the status quo. Uh, To the liberals, uh, he was an FDR New Dealer. And when he became president, Nobody was entirely sure which of these two camps he really belonged to. But I think he made it very clear very quickly that civil rights is what he wanted. I don't think this was the easiest or even the most uh, politically opportune choice for him to have made. Why was it so important to him? Well, I think because... He grew up in the South. He grew up poor. So he had the personal experience of societal rejection and judgment. But he also taught for a year. The only job he actually had, in fact, that wasn't about being a politician, he taught for a year elementary school in Catula, Texas, a border town. His children were all Mexican-American immigrants. He loved these kids. He loved their enthusiasm. But he would say that for each of these children, there would come a moment where he would see their realization that the world hated them simply because of the color of their skin. And and he never forgot that. He, as well as Nixon and Kennedy, taped a lot of his phone conversations and a lot of his meetings. And I heard a radio show where I heard some of those tapes, and I recognize some of LBJ's actual words showing up in your dialogue. What was your favorite bit of dialogue that you pulled from reality? Oh, gosh. Uh, You know, there's uh, the famous Taylor scene, which shows up on YouTube. But You um, want to describe that? That's exactly what I was thinking of. You want to describe that for people? uh, Well, he's... uh, he's, uh, Keeping in mind that this is a family show. (laughs) Yes, he's... He's uh, working with his tailor getting new suits made, and uh, he's very explicit and blunt in his description of how these pants should fit him. In a certain place, let us say. It's it's very amusing, Um, but it's not my favorite thing. Actually, my favorite thing, and I was kind of stunned when I read this, is an exchange between LBJ and uh, the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And LBJ actually asks Hoover— who we now know, of course, was a completely closeted homosexual. Yes. But he asked Hoover, how do you know when someone is a homosexual? And mm. and Hoover schools him. And uh, to listen to that bit of dialogue with what we now know about Hoover is pretty amazing. Robert Caro's book is, you know, a four-volume at this point and continuing set about LBJ. It is exhaustively researched. 
in your own research, is there anything you came upon that really surprised you that you hadn't known before? Well, there's a lot that surprised me. I, I, even though I grew up in Austin and my family had this very casual relationship with then Senator Johnson uh, regarding public television, like many people, I saw LBJ through a very narrow, very personal lens during the Vietnam War principally. There was so much I didn't know, especially uh, on the domestic agenda and on the man's character. He's such a conflicted individual. I love uh, Bill Moyer's description of LBJ. The 11 most interesting people I ever met was Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> uh, I think that pretty well sums it up. All right. Robert Schenken, thank you so much for talking to us and good luck at the Tonys. Thank you. A pleasure. Robert Schenken, his drama All the Way is up for best play at this weekend's Tony Awards. It's on Broadway through June 29th. So that's the Dinner Party download for this week, everybody. But speaking of spectacular live shows, we've got one of our own coming up in sunny California. That's right. Friday, June 20th, we will turn the swanky Moss Theater at New Road School in Santa Monica into a party of our very own. Our guest of honor is Mad Men's Elizabeth Moss, and your etiquette dilemmas will be addressed by the queen of the beach read, novelist Jackie Collins. Dress code casual, no covered dish required. Mm. Tickets are online at kpcc.org slash events. See you there. Meanwhile, let us tell you our associate producer is Jackson Musker. Brittany Martin's our digital assistant. Our interns are James Delahousie and Esther Mania. Engineering this week from Chris Clark and Jeff Peters. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from your next dinner party. This week, award-winning hip-hop artist Common signed a deal with the storied rap label Def Jam. Mm. And he announced the release date for his new album, Nobody's Smiling. It comes out July 22nd. Here's the single. It's called Kingdom. Bon appétit. Second row of the church with my hood on. My homie used to rap. He was about to get put on. At his funeral, listening to this church song. His family yelling and screaming. I heard for A cold world. That's why we pack heaters. Listening to this preacher as he trying to reach us. I'ma need to go back. I got to get him. Back and forth in these streets. That's the rhythm. Revenge is supposed to be the Lord's, but I use my own accord. When I seen him on the porch, cost my man his life. I can't afford not to hit him. Shots ripping through his true religion. Denim. These streets is my religion. I stood over him. His life is over then. Now these keys got me locked up with older men. Thought these was the keys for me to roll a bench. They ended up being the keys for my life to end. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newton. Oh, sorry. Emergency text. <sighs> gotcha. Come on, man. While we're taping? What? New Star Wars cast announcement.